All systems are go. All systems go. We um, have ignition. We have ignition. Can I get a countdown? Uh, now we are leaving uh, Weberia in five, four, three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem of Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And we are Samless yet again. Uh, all praise be upon him. May he be missed. Single tier. Single tier. Um, cool. Well, uh, we have some some killer topics, and I am, I, I've just been in... Man, I have been hyped up all day for this because I have so much ranting to do. Like, in some cases, the yeah, the articles are, are, are serious or funny or whatever. Um, and then the rants are where the rants come out. But no, this time it is, I will be ranting the entire time. So this will be great. So, I mean, really, I can just take a back seat to this. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, people come here for me. I mean, we know. I mean, l- l- well, no, well, no, no, Brevin, no, we must no. be honest. They came here for Sam. Yeah, they and come now here they, for Sam. now they have us. Yeah, they're, they're settling hardcore. Um, hey, listener, in life, don't settle for anything less than perfect or less than Sam, actually. Um, well, except, you can settle for us. I mean, except I, I don't want to chase of this podcast. you off. No, no. Then our, our listen count would go from like seven to six because I accidentally leave it on repeat and then I turn off. <laughs> Fine. I mean, listener, in the case of us, I'm going to tell you, you probably can't do any better. Okay. So you just need to, you just need to kind of accept this as the reality. Yep, Sorry. Yep. Sorry. This is, just some good honesty. This is what you deserve um, mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Uh, speaking of deserving things uh steven what are you drinking right now uh, i i guess i deserve this tea that i'm drinking i have some nice uh raspberry tea with honey i i just made it it's still hot quite nice would recommend so i like how the still hot was an option it's like okay uh this is my lukewarm two-day-old raspberry tea with honey that i'm drinking here i mean you joke about that but i have a thermos of coffee out in my car that still has a little bit that i'm looking forward to drinking in the morning when i'm too lazy to make coffee <laughs> See, see, I just, uh, well, I didn't upgrade my workspace, but I, my workspace was upgraded by a generous and equally lazy co-worker. Well, no, he's he's very industrious. But anyway, he he gets a kick on, on spending money on Amazon. And he bought a, so he bought one coffee maker for the office that we all shared that's in the break room. Then he bought a second one to put in my office that I share with one other person, but not him, just so that he didn't have to go to the break room because sometimes that's occupied. So now Ooh. we have a coffee machine in two places and i like have to walk five steps to start a new pot in the oh, morning no, that's a glorious thing yeah it's 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 pretty great yeah my my uh my boss's boss is a a delightful person who has i think at times a little bit too much more money than he knows what to do with and so bought our team an espresso machine an espresso machine i can't and, imagine uh, that gets used oh buddy it's good stuff oh man <laughs> i've gotten so spoiled it's awful now you're just making me think of the of the uh office episode where they all um get high on caffeine from their espresso machine but speaking of getting high uh blah, 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 blah. what drink are you drinking i uh life life i'm drinking life oh uh, uh, no, you're high on life uh, yeah i'm high on life no what i'm drinking is a very excellent old-fashioned so for those who do not know uh an old-fashioned is usually um a cube of sugar which then you dampen with a splash of water sometimes but definitely with uh angostura bitters which then you dissolve the sugar into the bitters, sort of coat the inside of the glass, and then put in a shot or two of um, of bourbon or whiskey. And then you uh, you can also put in 
an ice cube if, if you so wish. Um, I have a little bit of an upgraded version because uh, in place of sugar, you can use simple syrup. And in place of simple syrup, I have used my homemade spicy ginger simple syrup. So that combines very well with the bitters and very well with the bourbon that makes just for a sort of mouth-burning, mouth-numbing, very, very warm experience that is very flavorful. One thing I've always wondered, what is a bitter? I, it, it's just like a heavy combination of spices. Okay, so I mean, it's just... It's a spice. Spices. Is liquid. it a specific yeah. spice, or is it like so, a collection of spices? Yeah, so there are a few different ones. Uh, Ango, Angostura, which I don't actually know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's how it's spelled, is the most famous. It has a very distinctive bottle where the, the label's too big for the bottle. Um, and I'm sure other people have copied that. Um, but so that's that's the classic one that you that's uh, ubiquitous. It's 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 everywhere. And then there okay. are other. So like if you hear bitters, that's what they're talking about. If someone specifies something else, like chocolate bitters or like bitters that have a certain flavor profile, that's uh, that's different. That'll have to be specified because it's when someone just says bitters full stop, they're talking about Angostura. And if it's some, uh, something else, then they'll specify it. If it's something else, they'll talk about bitters for filthy casuals. Yes, they'll talk about you know like Chad bitters or um, you know mm-hmm. plebeian bitters or yeah yeah gotcha. filthy casual bitters yeah all that they can cool. just get out. Well, speaking of getting out, uh, my article is from someone who thinks that uh, randomized control trials should get out of my get out of my freedom because my freedom is more important. And mm-hmm. uh, this and this article is from the Washington Times. It is called uh, the Noble Committee has lost touch with actual science an an incredibly ironic title if i do say so myself given the stupidity and irony of this article um it's by deidre mccloskey who is a person very well known in libertarian circles wrote a series of books about the bourgeois values the thesis of uh this particular person's um uh let's say academic work is something like Similar to Francis Fukuyama's end of history, in a way, in that the idea of a liberal society, once it's been realized, just has sort of infected and grown, and it is kind of the best alternative, the best way to govern things. And it's based in the power of ideas, whereas other scholars might emphasize things like institutions or economics and things like that. But McCloskey's very much about it's the idea. It's the big idea. Once someone has the idea that we should have a free liberal society, that's just sort of taken hold and root, and that's the driving force. So McCloskey has written this screed against the so-called randomistas, which are people who are all gung-ho about what's called a randomized control trial, specifically in development work. And the people who are gaining this ire have just been announced to have uh, won the Nobel Prize for economics. And that's um, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo from MIT, and then one person from Harvard for this work, focusing on doing randomized control trials to test out the efficacy of various um, solutions to poverty. So like one classic example is, you know, you can give people mosquito nets, but there's some evidence to suggest, or there has been evidence in the past to suggest that if you make them pay for it, they're more likely to use it. So actually the thing that gets the most effect is to sell mosquito nets at a very low price as opposed to giving them away because if they're given away they'll be repurposed for other things or thrown away and they won't have their intended effect. And there's there's arguments about that. Like that's been debunked and redebunked, but the but the whole key is the idea is to do very, very small randomized control tiles 
trials in particular areas to see what the best policy solution is and then scale up. And in my opinion, it's a great thing, but McCloskey does not think so. McCloskey mostly talks about one experiment, and I'll just read um, about two paragraphs from the actual article. Quote, the noblists performed numerous experiments in which way they give one group a treatment such as eyeglasses to Chinese children learning to read and use a match group as a control. The control group doesn't get the glasses. Question, how much better do the glasses children do in learning to read? The idea is to imitate in economics what is called in medicine the gold standard of, of randomized trials. The makers of field experiment claim they mine scientific gold. If the glasses children do a lot better in reading, then the economists can recommend the policy of giving eyeglasses to children with poor vision, like recommending a baby aspirin a day if you've already had a heart attack. Doctor's orders. Give the kids eyeglasses and do not give people mosquito nets and so on and on to thousands of medical economic prescriptions. World poverty solved. And above all, we've been scientific about it. End quote. What McCloskey then does is use this eyeglasses experiment conducted by people who were following Duflo and Banerjee's lead as a proxy for this entire field that sprung up largely as a result of their work. And McCloskey proceeds to just throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall to try and see what sticks about reasons to dislike it, such as uh, people going back through some studies and finding statistical errors, people being concerned about the reliability of upscaling for particular problems to national policies. And all of these, in, in my opinion, are at least so far, are banal and minor objections. I mean, after all, we can always be better at math. We can always say, oh, your stats are bad. Let's fix that. In, in regards to the problem of upscaling, good political science is the reduction of uncertainty and the use of information to guide policy choices. So even if something doesn't upscale perfectly, it's better than having no information at all. So that's just a dumb, it's just a dumb objection, unless you come from McCloskey's uh, one-size-fits-all solution. But then McCloskey puts down the real hammer. Quote, critics make also the, shall we say, blindingly obvious point that we already know that a child who cannot see will not be able to read the alphabet, not to speak of hundreds of Chinese characters. The experiment is, to use a technical word, stupid. It's like the joke about the experiment to test whether parachutes work. Throw 10 people with parachutes out of an airplane at 5,000 feet, then throw 10 without. Science satisfied. Some remark that the eyeglasses experiment and a good deal of the work by the noblists is startlingly unethical and stupid, as the notorious Tuskegee syphilis experiment run from 1931 to as late as 1971. African-American men were randomly assigned to not get the penicillin that the medical scientists from the U.S. Department of Health already knew cured the disease. The economists, like the medical researchers, seem to have lost touch with their proper role. They are not ethically assigned to master our, our lives, and the Nobel Committee seems to have lost touch with actual science, which does not make a fetish out of method, which closely watches its ethics, and which is guided by actual non-stupid curiosities, end quote. And as a proper libertarian, the conclusion to this whole argument is that freedom is the only proper method of solving poverty. Um, so that's McCloskey's argument. And, or let's stop here for a second. Uh, Stephen, do you have any quick thoughts on where we've come? I, well, I mean, I think I, I, I agree with you in that the banality of some of uh, McCloskey's arguments are, yeah, like that, that's definitely fair. I mean, they're, they're not the most, uh, they're, they're not the greatest objective objections in the world. However, all of that pales when he just points out the obvious of like, yeah, of course, the person who has glasses is going to read better than the person who doesn't have glasses and needs glasses. Like, how how is this even how is this even a field of study? Like, are, are, are you kidding me right now? Um, I I really enjoyed the bit um, where uh, it's it, uh, McCluskey starts talking about seeing people as um, as means to the end or as uh, kind of 
tiny pieces into the overall chess game of trying to solve a larger problem. Uh, let's see, quote, the mastering assignment is what they assume when they focus on policy understood as tricking or bribing or, co or coercing people to do what is best. It sounds fine until you realize that is what your mother did to you when you were two years old and had properly stopped doing to you by the time you were 21. The field experimenters scorn adult liberty. And I really appreciate that particular um, critique because that, that, well, for many reasons, but the primary one is it goes back to McIntyre's um, bureaucrat. Uh, you're starting to see people as just means to an end, like as as ways of making the machinery of, I suppose, the world or the country you're in run the smoothest or have the the highest statistical amount of good uh, that um, that you can. So I I don't know. I really I really appreciate the fact that Mikulski kind of brought up this idea of look. I mean, even if this is working technically, even if the experiment wasn't stupid. Are we okay with using these people or kind of viewing these people as like kind of infantile there? We're just going to tell them what to do and we're going to direct all their lives X, X, Y, or Z and not really consider them as autonomous agent. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. That's uh, some, some interesting points. Um, so I'm curious, how much of an impression did I give you what my opinion of this article was before or when I sent it to you? Uh, not much. I think you actually said like, I'm not going to give you a straight okay. opinion. Yep. I'm going to love it or hate it. You're, you're going to kind of have to form your own opinion before. Okay, great. Cause I hate this article with a burning passion and everything it says really? is absolutely wrong. Yes. All right. Interesting. Let's, so let's get started. Here's, here's where the rant begins. <clears throat> okay. I don't want to say that this article is bloviating, um, but it's bloviating. And my response comes in uh, three sections, but summed up, it is that this article is a ridiculous straw man. It demonstrates the libertarian ignorance and dismissal of area knowledge, especially internationally, and it's criminally ignorant of the field of discourse that McCloskey's trying to talk about. Let's start with the first one. It's a ridiculous straw man. McCloskey seems to make this typical libertarian case about how this is all fiddling around the edges and it's manipulating people and it's trying to control them and taking away their liberty and not treating them as autonomous agents. But all that is a misread of the entire situation. The reason that you do randomized control trials is because you don't know what will get the result that you're looking for, such as people to use mosquito nets and to reduce malaria in a given population, which is a public health, public good goal in this example. And you and you have limited resources, and you don't know what the most effective use of those limited resources is. By doing a randomized control trial, and actually many randomized control trials, you are seeing what people are willing to respond to. You are seeing what actions they will take and trying to respect the, the choices that they will make in a way. Because if you just do a random policy, you know, you're you're not taking into consideration how people actually work on the ground at all. McCloskey's sort of counter narrative would be just like policy's bad, I guess. That's really the only position that can be taken when you consider the enormity of the problems that face numerous populations when you sort of remove your blinders. The objection about statistics is bad because there are bad stats everywhere and you can always make them better, but randomized control trials uh, attempt to. They're also meant to be replicable and testable, which is more than can be said about a lot of other research. It's also does just by going into the realm of mathematics, subjecting itself to some to the possibility of external rigor, unlike political theory, which McCloskey seems to exclusively dabble in. And that's not bad. Political theory is great. And so is economic theory. But math is also good. Wait, could you elaborate on that? At that point, I'm a little confused. You're critiquing McCloskey for wanting to go into the math of this no. economic field. No, no, I'm critiquing McCloskey because 
McCloskey hides behind political theory and doesn't engage with math. Because if your stance is policy bad, you don't have to like say, ah, but okay, but people are dying from malaria. Can we do anything about it? And the purpose of a randomized control trial is, can we do anything about it? And if we can, what is the most efficient use of our limited resources that we have? I see. Um, and that's sort of the big thing that McCloskey misses is it's not like these people are like, hey, I wonder if people could use glasses if they can't see. It's okay, we have $1,000 is the best use to put that money into buying glasses for people or towards giving them iodine tablets, because we can only do one of those things because we have $1,000. And that's it. And the purpose. Yeah, so that's, that's the context that McCloskey's article would have been incredibly smarter if it had at least even a- a- acknowledged that. Furthermore, all this stuff about respecting adults freedom and stuff. Uh, that's also just incredibly blinkered. So for example, there are numerous situations in which respecting parents' freedom would lead to absolutely terrible outcomes. Say, if parents were ignorant of the long-term positive effects of glasses or of mosquito nets, even if they're cheap, if they don't have the information, if they're lacking that key that key piece of, of the puzzle that would enable them to have to make the correct choice, then their freedom, not that it means very little, but it's a limited freedom. It, more information is better. And things like randomized control trials test out different ways we can get people resources and information and give them the option to choose them. Because we know, for example, that wearing glasses is better than not wearing glasses. So if we can find the best way to have more people wear glasses, then that would be great. But if you just respect freedom, then you're paralyzed, at least in terms of interventions. And, and again, McCloskey doesn't appear to believe in anything. In addition, there's a strong art argument to be made that especially in things that are vaguely public goods, like public health and people just like not being sick or dying, the, the, the best analogy is something like clean water. No one in the U.S. except for like Flint, Michigan, thinks like, hmm, I wonder if I shall have the dirty water today or, or, the, or the clean water today. The correct answer is we should have clean water and it would be best if everyone could have it. And it would also be best if no one had to think about the fact that we have clean water and instead we can just have it and then spend our time making decisions further up the chain and be more productive and be more healthy, etc. And these in- interventions test the most efficient places at which we can help make the correct choices that are made for us every day in the United States. Like, What's the timer on the crosswalk? How should we set up the um, the stoplight, public transportation? Like, a lot of those things are are terrible. But the fact that we don't have to think about it every single day, and that there is some external order and decisions are made, benefits us all hugely. I mean, in short, freedom is the best thing for increasing development. However, it's not the only thing, and especially in the circumstances that randomized control trials and these randomistas are operating in, freedom with an exclamation point is not an option. That's not something that a researcher or someone concerned about the well-being of someone can do. That's not a choice that you have. And this goes into my second objection, which is McCloskey here demonstrating the classic libertarian trope of naivete, ignorance, and dismissal of area knowledge, especially in the international arena. Like I said, freedom is great as a solution, but it's not always an option. Basically, only one place was founded to be a libertarian playground. Well, maybe two, maybe the Netherlands at some point, at least for drugs now, and then the US. And don't get me wrong, freedom solves like a million problems. But sometimes freedom isn't an option. Like I said, sometimes say like in rural Congo, and if your problem is malaria, you can't just walk in and say freedom exclamation point and expect to see any marketable improvement. Unless, of course, you are some kind of Leninist, libertarian accelerationist, and the end of history is this liberal capitalistic democracy, and that's basically McCloskey's thesis, if I say it uncharitably, and you believe that the heightening of tensions in despotic regimes will one day grow and grow and grow, and then spill over into peaceful representative democracy. Unless you believe that, the idea 
that quality of life interventions and suffering alleviation in the in corrupt countries where you can't unilaterally make them into a liberal capitalistic globally connected state the idea that that those interventions are equivalent to the Tuskegee syphilis experiments that's actually garbage brain like you you are you are actually just incredibly stupid at least on this particular issue, to think that. Um, and this leads to the third objection, which is that McCloskey is criminally ignorant of the field of discourse. For example, McCloskey uses Bill Easterly, a former, I think, head of the World Bank, or at least the development part of it, um, as someone who agrees with their stance. However, in his book, which McCloskey apparently didn't read closely, Easterly actually proposes what I consider to be the framework for large-scale implementation of the Randomista project. He has his skepticisms, but overall he thinks it vastly superior to the current system that we have now. And, and this is where McCloskey is ignorant, because development as a field is a thing that is here and it's not going away. And, our, and RCTs are by far the best aspect and the best approach to development and actually has seen some success and some innovations, unlike many, many other uh, types that just sort of dump money onto illiberal, tyrannic governments and hope that some of it trickles down. And McCloskey, in fairness, would object to that too. However, if we say that interventions can be helpful at all, which we have evidence that they can be, RCTs are by far the best way. And McCloskey's dismissal of this is just the height of ignorance and arrogance. And that is my, that is my opinion of this article. That is your opinion. That is your rant. That is an excellent rant. Okay, so I, I'm curious. This eyeglasses ex uh, example that both he and you bring up, mm -hmm. is this done in the context of other experiments that are being used to try to see what will improve reading scores? Or is it is it really a, we're going to have a control group without and with? And because I... I would still be inclined to agree that like that is stupid. Just all things being equal, you have somebody who can like you have two people of exact equal intelligence, intelligence, <laughs> exact equal eyes that both have some form of disability, whether it's twenty two hundred or even twenty thirty vision or whatever. If you give them, if you give them both, or if you give one, let's say placebo glasses, just like see through glasses, and <laughs> another actual prescription glasses i guarantee you that the person with prescription glasses is just going to read better like that's i guess i'm kind of with mccloskey in that at the very least at the surface that just strikes me as kind of sensical and i'm surprised that we needed to run an entire experiment to see if glasses helps the you know visually disabled read like that's just kind of obvious but the question isn't do glasses help people the answer as mccloskey and i'm sure the study's authors say the answer is obviously yes the it's, question they is help, help as much as other things correct yes and if you can say so so for example say malaria is an issue but you're like hey that's not that big of a deal you know people get sick then they take a medicine there's some deaths from it but it's mostly treatable now great let's focus on something else Let, let's go focus on aids unless for example you're able to find out that say not getting malaria has the tendency to increase your to keep your immune system stronger and increase your lifespan and increase your you know the wealth that you make over your entire life by you know thousands of dollars and you say okay so here is our hello i i am the world health organization and i have a limited budget in kenya is it a better use of my resources to do this and provide malarial nets and you know uh at at such and such cost per unit to such and such many people versus doing this treatment of of uh, of a more active illness, for example. The thing that McCloskey weirdly misses out on, because 
libertarians tend to love talking about this is the concept of trade-offs. All of the decisions, all of the policy decisions, all of these interventions that are at RCT tests are trade-offs with other interventions. And you have to determine what is the best intervention to make. And furthermore, so say for example, this is in, this is in China. Um, the people doing this experiment do not have unlimited resources to give every single child in China a pair of glasses should they need them. However, if they can say, hello, uh, guess what? Giving people who don't need glasses glasses because they won't get them otherwise increases productivity by such and such percent and makes them in incredibly better readers and they don't miss a grade and your country doesn't go into civil war because of this. Uh, China will be like, hell yeah, let's give it everyone who needs them glasses. And that's convincing evidence that a government that also has to make choices about trade-offs needs in order to make a uh, reasoned policy decision. So that that follows... I, I, I maybe I didn't uh, relate my question well. That's what uh, that's why I asked: Is it done in a context of other trials? For example, yes, we're going always. to give this group. We're going to give them glasses. We're going to have the control group where we don't give them anything. We're going to have this group where we give them extra, like an hour of extra reading practice or whatever. And then we're going to give this group braille or something like something like that. Is it done in mm -hmm. that broad of a context, or is it just glasses? No. Glasses? So that's that's always the goal. Um, is is to see you know what helps the most uh, like there, there's examples with textbooks like does it help to give schools textbooks does it help to sell them textbooks at a subsidized price does it help them to earn textbooks over some what increases the use lifespan proliferation of textbooks the best that's that's sort of you know the best the best situation however again some information is always better than knowing well not all fine I'm sure there is a there is an exception to this rule but in general more information is is better information, especially in context of uncertainty, which is all of politics and all of policy making. Okay. So, so when the Chinese government has some information about what giving people glasses does, or even aid organizations who have more money than the people doing the actual trial have information on what doing glasses does, then it's like, huh, I have my unknown policy in which I, you know, ship ten thousand books to these places, or I, or I can just give ones uh, existing people glasses. What would be a better use of the, you know, hard donated resources that my charity has like well sir we know that such and such and such will do this and we have no idea what the other thing does in the in the best of all worlds you would know exactly what both of those things does but at least knowing one of them gives you a way to make choices and you know say okay fine we'll give 70 percent to the known and 30 percent to the unknown so on and so forth I, I see so it's not so much a boolean of this makes it better. This doesn't make it better. It's it makes it better by this percent, some measurable amount. So you can go to whatever organization you're attempting to persuade and say, we've done the math. Here's the numbers. We know that it should uh, it should produce these results within a certain margin of error, etc. Mm -hmm. OK, so, so I, I mean, and here's another thing. So say you you, you have um, nine thousand kids who get who are given glasses and 9,000 kids who are not given glasses. What you're also testing there is, is this even a worthwhile thing to invest in? Say the people who, 9,000 kids without glasses, who you know end up having eye problems, they get their glasses from some other source. And it turns out to be extremely easy to get it, or it becomes increasingly easy over time as they get older or whatever, and the problem solves itself. Then you know, hey, actually, this isn't a worthwhile intervention because in general, most of the problems are solved or organically from the ground up. We should look for a different place in which to invest or highly target to those who 
who don't get glasses at all. I'm not sure if that's necessarily a good example, though, because I mean, the 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 control is not we are giving them glasses. The control or the sorry, the variable is not we are giving them glasses. The variable is glass. That's what you're studying, right? The effects of glasses. And so if people end up getting glasses through some other medium, wouldn't that actually screw up your experiment? Wouldn't you be actually motivated to make sure no one gets glasses in the control? No, not at all. Uh, What you're measuring with randomized control trials is the intervention itself. It's not our glasses. Oh, okay. It's does handing these people glasses on you know day one of kindergarten does that help and if not does I it, see. does selling it in the in in the you know uh in in the lunchroom does that get people glasses the best it's it's saying what is the best intervention like for example when i brought up the textbooks everyone agrees textbooks are good but what is the way to give people to get people textbooks that they will use them and keep them in the best possible shape and there are I many see. answers to that because people are human and they're random and there are all sorts of local effects that you can't possibly predict. So you have to find the best way to make your intervention. That, 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 that makes sense, I think. I I still am inclined to admire his, uh, at the very least, his skepticism towards uh, the viewing people as means to an end rather than an end. It still strikes me as very reminiscent of the bureaucrat or the, the, the government official um, that McIntyre brings up as the character type. Yes, it's, it's certainly technocratic however i would say it is the most humble of the technocrats okay and it, it, as as long as it's kind of acknowledged that it's maybe not the ideal but then again we don't live in the ideal world and we must kind of do something therefore like we'll just simply accept that the ideal isn't going to be made and, and we'll do what we can to to, to get as close as we yep can. i i think maybe the, the biggest sort of internal scream that i have against this is that mccloskey is just shameless butchering of a good for the sake of the best. Interesting. Okay. Yep. And if that's indeed what he's doing, then I'm completely inclined to agree. There are, there are kind of, there are quite a few tragedies where people, yeah, they denied the, the, the good for the best. Yeah. Well, speaking of tragedies, um, I used to think that my life was a tragedy, but now I think it's a comedy. Ah, Joker, 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 Joker. He is an excellent villain. I think he's rated at, at among the top five uh, comic book villains of all times. Uh, you know him. You love, you love him, him, I guess. You love, you, love, you love him. him. You hate him if he's par- played by Jared Leto. Uh, so, um, so, Stephen, I have a question, though. Yes. Uh, should, should someone see Joker? No, they should not see Joker, at least according to uh, Alexi Sargent uh, of First Things. Uh, who opens his article that is entitled Don't See Joker with Don't See the New Joker Film. So <laughs> this one, I, I actually can't quite tell uh, if he has seen it or not. Uh, he opens it up with saying, I invite you to sit this one out with me. So I guess buyer beware in that this guy may not have actually seen it. This guy d- definitely has not because his opinions are bad and misinformed. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. So mm, yes. I, I see you have some very strong opinions on this one as well. So. The, the the Joker, this movie is advertised as kind of this deep psychological insight into what makes a man crack, uh, like what what will grind him down to the very lowest and make a monster out of him. And it kind of Alexi opens up with saying that this is like this is an entire deconstruction of the Joker um, and that it's not going to pay off like the, what they promise is not going to be paid off. Uh, quote, don't see it to gain insight into the minds of radicalized young men or burgeoning mass killers. The movie teases insight there, but offers only a shallow reiteration of another generation's social crisis. Uh, and don't see it as a, uh, a Gotham City completionist, uh, you know, one that's going to like figure out and really flesh out the background of the Joker because the 
filmmakers themselves have kind of, you know, teased out whether or not this is the actual Joker of the Batman, which I think ostensibly it isn't, um, given that uh, Bruce Wayne is what, like eight years old um, when this, you know, well, I won't spoil too much if you haven't seen it, but uh, it's like set when Bruce is like eight years old. So odds are it's not. He just inspired the Joker that would come to be the mass vil- or the, the, the well-known villain. To the second objection, I kind of shrug and say, eh, that's not as big a deal. Like it's an interesting take on a Joker archetype, as it were. But to the first, I, I think there is there is something to be said about this idea of attempting to, to kind of bore into the mind of a of a villain but not really actually having any payoff i think that that's something that's i don't know that it doesn't strike me as unreasonable to make that accusation but in any case we'll move on and perhaps discuss that at a later time one one thing i actually i i really did enjoy was uh they discussed that joker is supposed to be a foil to batman and kind of the idea of batman not being in a movie with joker is actually completely antithetical to the very essence of Joker. Quote, it's exciting to see Joker on screen because of the problems he creates for Batman. How will Batman escape this death trap or foil the scheme or inspire the citizens of Gotham to rise above the fear and cruelty that the Joker would reduce them to? Without the Cape Crusader to combat him, the Joker is just another violent man who finds himself funnier than anyone does. Don't we have enough of those? Uh, of course, since evil is but a privation of goodness, Batman is less dependent on the Joker. He has whole rogues uh, or whole rogues gallery of foils, plus his sidekicks and fellow crime fighters. The Joker may need Batman, but only in the Joker's head is the reverse also true, which I really like that line that the Joker may need Batman, but it's only in the Joker's head that the reverse is true. I think that that is, I would argue, a very good criticism that there's a reason we find the Joker's so compelling, especially in The Dark Knight, which in my mind is the best rendition of Joker ever. Um, it, it, we we see Batman and the Joker as this yin and yang um, symbolism where Joker's this absolute madman of chaos and destruction and kind of this whimsy, whimsy about it, whereas Batman is the exact opposite. He is for, for law and order and structure, but with the seriousness about it. And these two circle e- around each other in in the joker we don't even see that we just see the joker going around you know performing crimes and ostensibly we're supposed to feel sorry for him as he's doing these things and then there's the whole we're giving the joker backstory or the ostensible joker uh backstory but that's one of the entire points of the joker is there is no backstory uh like his in his entire thing is i prefer there's a great quote i think from um the killing game, the killing joke, the killing joke that he prefers his backstory to be multiple choice. Um, and that's why in the dark Knight we see him say he, he, he gives multiple versions of his backstory because we're not supposed to get him. Like there's not supposed to be a reasoning behind his ba- madness. There's another quote, the incommensurate nature of his evil isn't a shortcoming in psychological realism. It's a choice to make him an archetype of disorder. Making a film about the Joker's life as a humiliated and downtrodden everyman is a little like write, writing a prequel to Othello where er, Iago's malignancy is explained by his life as a sad sack foot soldier. It misses the point. I think that's also a very compelling argument that the Joker, giving the, the Joker a backstory, it kind of denies his strength as a villain. He's supposed to be this this force of nature that you cannot reason with. Um you you can't negotiate. Um which I will pause here in my in my rant slash breakdown of this uh article it, it, to say that on the one hand I actually really like the idea of sympathizing with the Joker. I really like the idea of 
understanding that nobody sees themselves as the villain, nobody sees themselves as the bad guy, or at least very few people do. Um, and that every every single person, no matter how evil, no matter how repellent, is deserving of empathy and grace, certainly with justice. You know, like that's not to say that, you know, Hitler should be, you know, only treated nicely or what have you like, but, but understanding what led up to such a tragic life is a very important thing, but that's not exactly the point of the Joker. The, the point of the Joker is this archetypical chaotic force. And we're kind of watering that down with the Joker. Um, the, uh, the last kind of, point of criticism uh he brings up is that uh ultimately evil is banal and hollywood just doesn't quite understand this um quote hollywood needs to learn a lesson and it won't learn it if films like joker rake in the profits the lesson is that evil is not all that interesting people who do evil are often unhappy and unfulfilled in other areas of life but that doesn't that doesn't explain their evil plenty of people are sad lonely or downtrodden without becoming spree killers and it quite obviously doesn't excuse their evil. All it does is offer the ugly little fantasy that maybe doing something really terrible is the way to put your name on the map. End quote. Which, I mean, not to get too social justice warrior-y, but I mean, we've seen we've seen enough of these examples of people who have these really downtrodden, miserable, pathetic lives, and they want to go out with a bang and have their five seconds of fame, and therefore they go and do horrible things. But those people themselves aren't that interesting. They're tragic, but they're not interesting. Um, and there's this wonderful Simone Veil quote, which I think I've actually brought up on a previous show, but quote, imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. Imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating, end quote. Uh, Alexi wraps up uh, this with offering a surprising alternative. Uh, I, I've never seen any of the Halloween movies. I I personally am not very much into horror slash slash uh, spree killer movies much uh, like like Halloween, but he uh, he offered this as uh, he offered the 2018 uh, rendition of Halloween as an alternative. Quote: The 2018 reprise of Halloween offered a more trenchant take on a different storied killer with a stark white face. Michael Myers, it was a silent vector of death without discernible motive or grander methodology. But several other characters, from a pair of podcasters to a sketchy psychiatrist, were obsessed with discovering some deeper root or larger import to his crimes. Surely, thought these characters, if he would but speak to us, we would all be enlightened. But, as grizzled survivor Laurie Strode warned them, their quest to uncover a meaning behind Michael's massacres would lead only to further tragedy. There's no there there. Uh, end quote. And so, on the whole, I thought this was a nice kind of uh, foil to a lot of the the raving reviews i've seen of joker i actually won't double down on this and i won't say don't go see joker i intend to see joker that's right i haven't actually seen joker i primarily brought this article along just to troll brevin because i know he really liked it that said i i have seen a few I, only one or two in very amateur pushbacks against joker that's that's saying it's it's kind of a, a strange thing that we're trying to bring a sympathetic view to this archetypical chaotic figure and i think Think, I guess that's why my eyes kind of lit up when I saw this. It was a more intelligent, nuanced take on what seems wrong about trying to to figure the Joker out. So would highly recommend this article. It's nice and short and uh, brings up a lot of interesting points about our, our favorite clown killer. Revan, you may now attempt to rebut. I'm sure you have many things to say. Uh, that I do. Um, so so Stephen, you, you mentioned a couple things. I, I actually have multiple like one-liner 
things to open with um, because you said so many things, but I'll just I'll just do do do, do two of them. I suppose. Do your worst. So in the first answer, you said that you've seen uh, numerous amateur attempts at takedowns. Well, I regret to inform you that you've seen yet another. <laughs> The second thing is your Simone Wheel quote talking about how imaginary evil is varied and romantic, um, but real evil is dull, boring, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say exactly this movie demonstrates that precisely and literally on the screen. And this movie is perfect because all of the real evil is uh, dull and boring and it's the imaginary or and the varied romantic evil is literally imaginary in this movie so uh checkmate but okay so now let's wait, get wait, in so what what you're saying is that this movie is dull and boring oh so great another reason why you shouldn't see it ha 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 no ah uh, you've the... taken after the joker yeah yeah <laughs> no uh we're not gonna do joker last actually that'll be the outtakes but all right oh, so geez. so so let's get into this um break it down yeah the, the the first thing is sergeant's point which you uh reiterated which is you know don't see this to gain insight into the minds of radicalized young men or burgeoning masculars saying that that's not what it's about that's that is entirely the wrong take this movie is not about what makes a man crack to become the joker if if someone takes that uh, takes that approach they are completely missing the symbolism of the joker and the mimetic significance of the joker especially contra batman and in the field of uh, uh symbols and concepts in which the joker exists that is the wrong take any take that begins with that has misunderstood the movie but then what is the well we, what is we the will get there the movie okay okay we'll get there along that line i do have to say that it's disappointing to see first things buying into sort of the mainstream media's obvious and rabid desire for a shooting to actually happen this was such a incredible attempt at making a self-fulfilling prophecy because they were mad at the movie for some ideological reasons they were trying to make fetch happen and but in this case fetch was a mass shooting so that they could just say i i told you so to all the people who were like out oh, actually this movie will probably be fine so i i did like just off the outset that is i mean first things isn't really in this boat but so many other outlets this absolutely irresponsibility and utter depravity that people would basically be actively wishing for something to happen just so they could say like, Oh, look, my think piece was right. So that's disgusting, but let's talk about the film now, itself. For the record, I am with you on that. I, I, I was reading. And I think one of the, the, I mentioned one of the amateur reviews, it was pretty much exactly that. And those, yeah, I find, I find that distasteful at best and, uh, uh, uh unethical at work. so here's here's uh one one broad thesis that deals with many of the issues that you and and, and sergeant have brought up and that is that this film has to be viewed starting with the end that is the meme of the joker we live in a society blah 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 we it is just society? that we do live in a society but the joker is just that and this movie is just a meditation on the joker meme itself much as we talked about a few podcasts ago, this is a mimetic bottleneck that creates one possible backstory. This is not meant to be viewed and cannot be viewed and will never correctly be viewed as a start-to-finish forward-moving story. The question is always, we have the ending. We know what the ending is. The ending is the Joker, this incredible mythic figure. And the question is, okay, what is a backstory? What is one backstory of how we get there? And the key is that... This will never be a story of how one random guy becomes the Joker. It's how the Joker becomes the Joker. It's a, it, it is always and must always be self-contained. There is no random guy becomes Joker. It is always 
the person who was meant to be the Joker becomes the Joker. Let us watch that happen out. And that is both the biggest failing of the movie, but also its biggest strength. And also, as I've pointed out, its biggest defense against all these objections that attempt to read a linear storyline to it instead of a movie in conversation with itself from beginning to end. And I mean, and it's just obvious this movie would not work if it wasn't about the Joker, which entirely proves the point that I'm making. If we didn't know that the Joker was at the end of the movie, that we're like, how do we get to, to this mythic figure? How is this mythic figure created? And this, and, and this also ties into how this movie as a whole is a meditation on the symbol of the Joker itself, which we'll get into in a second. I just want to try and go in order. But that's why this movie works. This would not be an interesting movie if it were a rando going around and then he puts on like a like a furry costume and starts shooting people. I mean, that would be about Beto O'Rourke. That would be funny. Ooh, ooh, but, ooh. Um, <laughs> but all that... That's fired. But all that to say, the when Sargent talks about preferring that the backstory of the Joker be multiple choice, that that's the best version. It's like, yes, exactly. That is exactly it. And the Joker will always be multiple choice. This is simply one way that it could go. And the fact is, it'll work whatever backstory they give him because we all are just waiting for the unveiling of how we get to this, you know, incredibly mythic figure. Therefore, the Joker will never be an everyman. This is not the story of an everyman, and it can't be because we already know what this person becomes and is from the beginning. So, hmm. I, actually, I'd like to dispute that point. Um, no, it it is everyman. The oh, in fact, they're saying that everyman has the potential of becoming the Joker because the end is already known. And if the end is already known, it could happen to anyone. They, the fates have chosen this one person to be the Joker. And therefore, it's it's actually kind of going in, admittedly going in very much in line with Joker's mentality of all it takes is one bad day, to quote from uh, uh, The Killing Joke. Uh, all it takes is one bad day to be to go from bad to worse. But that's the entire point of Batman at all, is that no, you're the one that's messed up not mm-hmm. the rest of us. It took one bad day for you to 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 disintegrate into the Joker into this archetypical figure. Mm-hmm. That's not the truth for everyone. You're yes. the you're the one. So I, exactly. I would argue that it's, it's not about the everyman. It's about the one person fated to be Joker. Okay, but but fate implies a de- or implies a determination. So what the fates are just going to choose one person. They don't have yes. a choice in it. I I I mean in the in in terms of archetypes, yes. The the archetypes isn't like, huh? Who wants to be? Who wants to be the epitome of chaos this week? Ah, Bill, you look. It, it's about your time to do it. Uh, no, it's it's. This is the person who was destined to be Joker. Nothing will change that, and that's why it's not about you. It's about the Joker and only the Joker. No one else. No one else will be the Joker. Everyone else in that city was having an incredibly bad time of life, but none of them became the Joker. They became his acolytes at best. Only one person becomes the Joker, and that's the point of the film. So now, the objection about Batman, I think, is fairer than most ob- objections. And that's just, you know, that without Batman, he falls flat. But this is uh, wrong, because the Joker will never fall flat. Because, uh, you know, speaking of, of treating adults with respect, people are, are capable of holding symbols in the abstract and can recognize a necessarily paled archetype when they see one. The Joker will always have his Batman, even if there's no Batman there, just as the Batman will always have implicitly the Joker lurking, waiting to show up. Uh, Although, I do agree, less so than the Joker needs the Batman. And we don't need the physical presence of a, you know, nipple-suited bat fetishist to pound this obvious structuralism into our heads. The lack of a Batman doesn't detract from the movie. It's almost just like a prequel to their 
impending fight or even just to draw Aha, the- but it's a prequel this movie would not be interesting if we hadn't seen the contest between batman and joker over and over and over again that's the only yes. reason this is interesting that's fine that that so, is exactly my so point then this joker is- needs the batman yes and so are- it is a necessarily paled archetype and maybe it can the- it, it can survive on its own but still only in a in a shadow shadow of what it is no it's it's not a shadow form because we because we know in the back of our minds what the ending is we know we have the richness of this conceptual and narrative and multiple narrative field that we say ah this joker goes into this broader this broader conversation of joker and and batman movies and it's rich because of that and it works because of that. That doesn't detract from the movie or make it bad. That's why the movie works. Period. I, I would say is a they, reason. So agreed that so the movie must rest on top of on top of the pre existing contest between Batman and Joker. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that does follow. But then why do we need the backstory, or why do we need the possible backstory, or one of the multiple choices uh, choice options of the back backstory? Like, I mean, is that one, is that necessary for an archetype? I mean necessary i mean is is any movie necessary is any one particular story absolutely necessary beyond the that okay let let me rephrase because that's a good point is that helpful to the mythos of batman or is that helpful to the mythos of uh the gotham universe yeah i i i think this this adds another interesting unique and cinematically and audio wise beautiful and very well put together contribution to this larger matrix of connected narratives it's it is a well-crafted addition to a larger set of stories and that doesn't mean that it's the one essential one it it could not be made the world would would still turn but that doesn't mean that we that there's any reason to like knee-jerkedly reject it um anyway so uh, let's 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 turn to something because i i i wrote this down too and you quoted and this is that hollywood needs to learn the lesson um to not depict evil and it won't learn if films like the joker rake in profits and my response to this is uh, true i mean all hollywood definitely does this but it's not just hollywood it's our entire culture it's you know all of the true crime and conspiracy podcasts it's true crime tv uh you know all murder shows um even the mainstream media for that matter all of this 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 ilk is just the depiction and the um and the fetishization of terrible people doing terrible things and a big part of it is just or or at at, at least part of it is as we live increasingly comfortable and safe lives we just have this i don't know disgusting urge to be like hey i i I wonder what the worst of us are capable of let's watch that let's listen to my to my podcast walker percy has a lot to say about that yes yeah for sure so 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 all that to say is that uh it, it, it's a generic critique that applies to basically everything. It doesn't particularly apply here, especially since if my argument is true that it's not about how a random becomes a Joker, it's how the Joker becomes a Joker in at least one instance, then we don't have any objection there. The final thing that I want to say is that I've said at least once or twice that this movie is a meditation on the symbol of the Joker, qua symbol. This is, I think, the most essential thing about viewing this film. And that is that the Joker in this movie is reactive, that the people who respond to him aren't connected to him. He's a symbol to them, and he is one unwittingly for the most part. In, mm-hmm. the, in the Dark Knight, Keith Ledger's performance, one of the most interesting things 
that isn't usually talked about is the people who follow the Joker with just this fearless devotion, like the person who, you know, has a phone bomb in his stomach who just says, you know, he, 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 he told me he'll make the voices go away like, immediately before he explodes and frees the Joker mm-hmm. from from prison mm-hmm. and the thing is the joker doesn't care about them it's, it's it's nothing about them he is the agent of of chaos and destruction and narcissism but there but there are people all around just how in this film the people in the riots whether or not those actually happened is, is up to question but they're projecting onto the joker as a symbol what they want him to be in a in a you know mm. immediately corollary way that people that batman wants to be the symbol for justice and fear for evildoers and so the in the similar way, the people who hate this movie are also projecting onto the Joker what they dislike about it and just other un- unhappinesses that have nothing to do with the actual thing itself. The ratio of people who irrationally despise this movie to those who vociferously like it should show you something. And I wouldn't say that I like unabashedly say that this movie is great. It has gratuitous violence it depicts evil but it is a well-crafted film and it contributes to a larger conversation plus all this fun symbolism stuff which i think is very cool but this movie is a proxy battle and in at at least in in some sense and most of the people i would say who like hate hate it with just you know just this this burning like this irrational passion like seriously incidentally is this a common like i i actually am not very well aware of any battlefield that's going on about the joker right now i would i had some vague notion that some people didn't like it due to the whole glorification of violence some vague accusations of incels using this as an excuse to go uh go shoot people and uh, a vague hope that like you know there's a mass shooting or whatever because then they get to go advertise on it and say tis tis Mm -hmm. look at this bad movie that inspired this is it really that big of a battlefield right now uh, I don't know if it is right now. It's probably died down. But when it was first coming out, like there were people saying, like, I would never go to the Joker. It's the first movie that I've gotten up and walked out of the theater. I was disgusted with this film. Like mm. just people who, who, as I was about to to say, these these people who hate hate it. They're you know just these self important navel gazing one off moralists who would never apply this kind of scrutiny to any other movie. And those are the people against whom my rant is 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 mostly directed mm. at. Alexi may or may not be this. I'm not. I'm definitely not accusing you of this. But but you're too kind. But a a good portion of the people who are making the strongest criticisms are these kind of people. And like to be fair, it is not the best movie ever made. It's not a movie with a clear ideology. Um, I think Alexi was vaguely right when, uh, although he didn't think it was justified. I think it is something like a primal scream, um, but maybe most accurately, a very meta exploration of a symbol and symbols in general. So my conclusion is watch it, appreciate the video and the audio quality, muse about the Joker meme, and then shut up. Uh, And (laughs) if the Joker were alive today, he would be a cool vape guy and gamer, um, and people who criticize the movie would still be bad people. The end. Well, well said the, uh, the Chad Joker. Um, uh, okay. So a, a few points, uh, to your point on the good and that this is uh, primarily depicting, uh, evil. I will actually agree with you on one point that I was very surprised that Alexi was kind of advocating Halloween. Um, which in my mind is at <laughs> least the Joker brings up some interesting discussion points, such as the one that we're having mm-hmm. in my opinion, Halloween brings up nothing. It, it brings up no <laughs> discussion points. It is a madman walking around hacking people with a machete like that that is all there is it is so mind-numbingly one-dimensional that but but don't you understand that that his white mask is the alienation of ourselves from our labor and 
and the the machete is um, the proletariat reclaiming uh, property. Um, fight the power. Fight um, the power. <laughs> at, at the same time, though, I I would still push back and say, like, while an interesting depiction of evil, it is still only a privation, and therefore not having some sort of primal good to combat it does leave it bereft. Um, I, I I am interested. Do you really think that the uh, I mean, you read a lot into the the uh, meme and the symbol of the Joker. I, the impression I got from the majority of people who were watching it, and no no intellectual lightweights themselves, it generally was a this is how society treats people, and that caused his spiral and decay into madness and violence. Um, is that the overall impression, or is that the uh, current popular interpretation is of not origin story, not not social commentary, but rather symbol symbolic interpretation of an archetypical form of chaos or is that is that your personal apology of it which is fine if it is i'm just curious if that's the popular apology no yeah um so first just very um briefly to your point oh damn it i forgot what it was um uh, so the um even if it is a particularly good uh, oh, right, right, vision okay. of evil it still needs a good to balance it out that yeah. it yeah, so so yeah, so yeah. my my simple counter to that would be you would be correct if this were the only movie about the Joker that existed, but because we have a, a larger framework of, of context, as in in the same way that we are all just waiting for the Joker to make his appearance at the end of the movie. Hmm. There, okay, so it, to use the analogy of Michael Myers, Michael My uh, Halloween might actually be an interesting movie to watch if it were set in a larger mythos in which. Michael Myers has his equal opposite, not yeah. a bunch of scared townspeople who are trying to kill him slash run exactly. away from him, but yep. rather a hero that rises up and fights him in a sort of yin and yang sort of way. Yes, there is no no counter to that character. Or, or I, I guess maybe the more recent movie maybe tried to create one. I wouldn't know. I haven't seen it. I, I, I haven't seen it and have no interest in it. I, it. Although I would say like from watching various trailers slash uh, I, I enjoy binge watching the CinemaSins, uh uh, Vers- or is Sinmissen's takes on horror movies because I can't yep. watch the horror movies myself. Um, <laughs> and I, my impression of Michael Myers is he is almost Batman except evil in that he is very silent, he is very serious, he is very monochromatic, he just walks around, he is this force. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think amusingly enough in the Michael Myers universe, the superhero equivalent would be something similar to the, at least the aesthetic of the Joker in that he would be brightly colored, he would be laughing, he would be, mm. he would be Tom Bombadil. That would be the equal opposite. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> in any case, uh, do, do go on. Oh, no, yeah. Just in, in answer to your question about the symbology argument, um, some people have made, I would say, weaker versions of an, an, of an argument that I'm making. I, I think it's a pretty common observation that this movie wouldn't work if it wasn't about the Joker. If it was just about some rando putting on, like I said, a fursuit and then going around and being, you know, bad. That mm-hmm. That wouldn't be interesting. And from for me at least in my you know dabblings in memeology, it's just a it's a simple extension to ask, okay, why why wouldn't this movie work if it weren't the, the Joker? It's because the Joker is a is a meme and it's connected into other memes and other symbols, namely the Batman, namely the ambiguity about backstory, um, and 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 the fact that the Joker is in you know uh, let's say not the most serious, but in the most mythic batman stories the joker is the equal opposite of batman and is a symbol in his own right and just you know 
expanding that mm-hmm. out in, into a uh, into a larger argument. So the answer is uh, parts of my personal stance are are out there, but I don't think anyone has this particular one. That's fair. Uh, and the the last quasi objection I'll have um, is. And this one is actually coming from a, from a place of ignorance, so you can just say, "Hey, go watch the movie," and then we'll we'll talk. And that's that's actually entirely fair because again, I partially chose this is just to troll you. Um, <laughs> but, but it worked. My, out. I was mad all day. <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, I was I was I was loving it. Um, there there was there still exists in my mind this idea of sympathy for the Joker, which. Mm-hmm. Again, on the one hand, I actually really like that idea from an ethical perspective, um, dare I say a Christian perspective, in that every single human being, no matter how depraved, no matter how fallen, is still a human being that burns with the image of God. Um, And I think there is something very edifying about offering that even to this archetypical form of chaos. Um, mm-hmm. That there is something very edifying about going into the backstory and seeing, like, seeing what a tragic figure what what sort of awful thing society has done to grind him into this this terrible villain mm-hmm. um on the other hand maybe the 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 part of me that likes things black and white and likes kind of simple stories of goodness fighting evil it's one of the things i love about lord of the rings is you have good you have evil and there's no real in between there are a few characters that kind of flicker back and forth yeah but for the most part yeah yeah denethor smeagol um uh, Boromir, who is a brilliantly flawed character, etc. Et like there are a few, but for the most part, you have Mordor, evil; Gondor, good; Rohan, good; Saruman, evil. Like you have, you have these nice kind of lines delineated. And one of the one of the kind of metas in a lot of uh, film and uh, and kind of pop art right now is kind of uh, deconstructing those lines and saying like, well, actually, is history just written by the victors? Is which i mean to be fair it is but even in our fantasies we can no longer imagine a purely good society or a purely bad society we can no longer imagine a purely good person or a purely bad person which on the one hand i think is a realistic take but when we're trying to strive for an ideal it strikes me as a kind of almost lamentable thing like i i kind of like the idea of joker as just pure evil that it is okay to fight it is okay to to take him as a symbol to strive against and when you add this sympathetic, but he was actually a poor man who was ground into dust. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something almost lost about it. Um, so I would be interested in if first, am I wrong in that in that that's my impression of what Joker has to say about, well, the Joker. And second, is that a reasonable critique? I think that's a good question. Um, I, I think so in comparison to say Heath Ledger's, joker who is not sympathetic at all there is yeah, no reason right. to to sympathize batman's um, show of mercy and not letting him die is one of the most character defining moments of batman in that in that trilogy I, I i think it's one of batman's fatal flaws but whatever um the <laughs> uh the um, well so does the joker so uh you know yeah yeah that's fair um i won't kill you because you're just too much fun um <laughs> But uh, so the answer to it's necessarily more sympathetic just because we have some some backstory and like, you know, he has a, a, a job that sucks. And we're like, damn it, I've been there. I've been chased by by small children and beaten over the head with a sign. We've we've all been there. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Every and, time. Every day. Um, yeah. Every day. Um, however, I would say so the arguments that say that the Joker is empathetic 
I think are overblown because he's shown to be a loser. He's shown to be grotesque and grody in numerous ways that people, some people, uh, you know, and, and I've had friends who said like, not me, not you, but some of my friends have said, yes, actually my life is as shitty as this, which is 100% possible. I am, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure that's possible. So in as much as that is true, there is the possibility for some empathy. I think the bigger thing is uh, sympathy, also called pity. I, I don't think the, the summation is, I hate to be a one track, um, a one track record here, but we all know, I, I, I think, that in the end, nothing that can happen to you can justify being the Joker in the end, in, in hmm. the full sense and the full span of evil and wanton uh, disregard for human life, malevolence, narcissism. Nothing can, can, can truly justify the full expression of that. So I think there are points of reaction where the Joker is sympathetic. Like, for example, when he first kills someone, it, it is in self-defense. But then that's followed up with reveling in it. Hmm, and, okay. and, and, and as it becomes more and more reveling in it, at that point, it becomes less and less, oh, this is like a situation that someone could find themselves in. And more, he is becoming the Joker character. He is becoming this unimaginable, inconceivable evil. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So all that to say, ladies and gentlemen, don't see Joker, but go ahead and see it. Yeah, yeah. Because cool. I probably will end up doing so. Man, this this is going to be our first long episode in a while, just because I I was so mad at my article, and then I was mad at your article, <laughs> and, and and that's when the paragraphs start coming out. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we'll we'll go back and forth at it every day. It probably would have been a more intelligent discussion had I been able to, you know, actually quote from the joker and whatnot but hey you know what can you do i saw some memes about the joker and that's all i really need right (laughs) it's true it's true um memes are the the distillation of information to the most important parts as as we all know Um, but uh but once you see it uh we should just do like a quick like five minute revisit and see if 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 you think my thesis is accurate like to be fair this thesis is developed over time and like several weeks after i've seen it so i i could be projecting backwards who knows mimetic bottlenecks and all that Mm. but um but but anyway once you see it, we'll revisit. But speaking of revisiting... No, to be fair, uh, though, I doubt it will be five minutes. Yes, that's true. Um, but speaking of revisit... Or actually, let me change that. Speaking of not being five minutes, um, let's wrap up this podcast with our rants. Uh, uh, Steven, what? do you have a, a rant for us? I do, and I'll keep it short and snappy. Uh, a friend of mine recently showed me a, a rather interesting... Um, lecture given by it was a keynote address actually uh given by one of the more eminent um computer scientists of our time whose name i happen to forget but this this guy was bringing up one of the one of the problems with uh, machine learning and it's machine learning right now is almost it's kind of dark magic um that in fact uh one bit of a side i'll I'll take is that there is a a textbook used by i believe stanford university or mit actually i think it's mit it's like the standard algorithms textbook for computer science it is one of the best computer science textbooks ever written and it opens up with computer scientists are sorcerers we are using an arcane set of symbols to summon forth forces that we will probably be able to control if we use those symbols right but if we don't something can go catastrophically wrong which I personally love because as a computer scientist, that means I'm a sorcerer. <laughs> but actually, it turns into kind of the scary truth with a lot of machine learning. With code, with like, you know, if I write a binary search and something goes wrong and the 
the search doesn't find the thing that I know is actually there, I can fix that. I can trace through the code and I can see this, like, this is where I screwed up. And certainly as code bases grow larger, debugging becomes more difficult, but it's still within the realm of possibility. With machine learning, however, what you have is you have massive, and I'm talking massive amounts of data. Think Facebook, think of how much uh, data Facebook or Twitter has, and then apply a bunch of linear algebra on top of that, where the out, like, Yes, if you want to, you can go through step by step and try to figure out exactly what that linear algebra is doing to all that those pieces of data. But if you do so step by step, it will take you until the heat death of the universe. Like it, it is impossible to go through and figure out exactly what's going on with that. And so you have these really scary algorithms that are uh, one of the examples given is let's say Facebook. Facebook is very incentivized by ads, right? And through no no one's fault, people will have just written these algorithms um, or written these machine learning models, apply them. Eventually, it's entirely possible, and I believe it's been shown. Actually, take the the I believe it's been shown now because I'm actually not sure. It's it was an example a friend gave me, but I mm. yeah take that out. Um, it's entirely possible that that machine learning layer would figure out. Oh, I see this person. I see this person has really volatile emotions every few months. And when they're on this layer of, uh, of the emotions, I know that selling them things will become a lot easier. And therefore, you have machine layer mo- or machine learning models uh, taking advantage of people with bipolar disorder. Like you, yeah. you have these really scary algorithms that nobody knows exactly what's going on to because it's just a massive amount of data piled on with a ton of linear algebra that people at a very high level know. Well, this model is actually pretty good at doing this general result of detecting these trends. So I'm just going to set it running and walk away. And if something goes wrong, I won't know. And I won't really know how to fix it, even if I do, if I do know that something. Went so all that to say, machine learning is uh, sketchy sometimes. And it's something that we as a society really need to figure out exactly what to do about. Wow. Okay. I liked how you said the problem with machine learning, and I, I really wanted to shout the problem with machine reading. Uh, <laughs> hey! We would make that the title, but we have to put Joker and um, randomized control trials. So, you know what? The problem with machine reading and the Joker is actually the title. Okay, Ooh, cool. Excellent. Uh, all right. Okay. So uh, let's do this quick and then get out of here because we've been here for too long. Um, we have. Uh, you know what? This might be a divide into two parts for the first time. That, that might be worthwhile. Um, anyway. Mm. My rant. Uh, here is a blow against uh, assumptions and judging books by their cover. Um, in this case, literally. Uh, I am currently working on building out my African literature bona fides, and a book on my list is called Ant Hills of, of the Savannah by Chinwa Achebe, a Nigerian oh. writer. Um, and I, I, I've studied him a bit, um, but the books that I've all read have been either some like shorter works, like essays, or his uh, like I think his first two novels, or maybe second, and third, uh, the classics, uh, Arrow of God and Things Fall Apart. Um, things oh, fall I read apart, Things uh, Fall uh, Apart in AP Lit. I was just gonna say it made famous by AP Lit. Um, mm-hmm. But but what I to be honest, I liked both of them, but I was very over the setting of this like mid colonization tensions between tradition and colonizing influence etc etc and don't don't get me wrong both books are good important in various ways i just didn't want to read a third one of those and i was expecting this again in this uh ant hills of the savannah book um and was putting off starting it but then i started it and it's freaking amazing uh it's like set in the 1950s in this imaginary african country and the main characters are some of the main characters at least are are these three 
friends who grew up together under British colonial rule, um, all being schooled in the same classroom. And now post the end of colonization, you know, as, as their new nation is started, has had like one revolution so far. And as it's newly freed, this group of people all find themselves in positions of like super high authority and contradictory to e each other. Like one is the, the actual like military dictator. One is the government's commissioner for information. The other is the head of the largest newspaper. And it's great. It's, it's, it's all the stuff about influence of power and political intrigue and drama. And it, it, it feels very modern um, and, and much more close to what I know and understand. And it's great and not what I was expecting, um, but, but very much appreciate. So hmm. uh, uh, don't don't judge books by their cover, at least until you read the first chapter. Then you can judge them. Indeed. Some some good lessons to be taken. Don't judge books by the by their cover and don't watch the Joker. Yeah. Shush, 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 shush your mouth. Although I will say the books that you can judge by their cover are those ones in that weird section of the library that all hmm. have like a shirtless dude on them. Uh, you can definitely, judge those You cover. can definitely judge those by their cover. Actually, it's funny. One of my friends uh, has a has a friend in the publishing industry, and she was talking to him, um, and uh, she was saying like, "Okay, so there's like a big strategy in selling books and marketing books is you've got to be in the meta. So like, if vampires are really big, you got to write about vampires. If uh, you know teenage heartthrob post apocalypse are really in the meta, you got to write on that. And then you've got to to really have a good book cover, or you can write a good book." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's 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 sad but true oh it's too true too uh, true good well i uh i i think that was a pretty good episode i i think I, so i apologize to all for my uh bloviating commentary bloviating means long-winded you bloviating no uh, among other things i think uh, you just really i think you wanted an excuse to use that word and therefore you were intentionally long long-winded Okay, fun fact, neither Gmail nor Facebook thinks bloviating is a real word, so I'm officially smarter than all the quote-unquote machine learning at Google and Facebook, so um, uh, sucks to suck. Is, this is why we can't have the proletariat in the in the technology world. Nope, nope, 100%. 100%. Absolutely. Oh, cool. All right, well, uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And uh, I used to think this podcast was a tragedy, but now I know it's a comedy. <laughs> That's not Joker. Uh, go see Joker, I guess. Good. Sweet.